I want to begin this morning by asking you a, a few personal questions. And no, you don't have to answer out loud, okay? But obviously, I want you to try your best to be honest with yourself this morning. If and when you seek advice, are you the type of person who is genuinely looking for answers from someone more experienced than yourself? Or do you generally have your mind made up and simply want the person you're seeking out to agree with you and your plan? Which one? Are you an arrogant right fighter or an honest truth seeker? Do you like it better when people tell you what you want to hear and, and give you what you want or those who tell you and give you what you need even when, especially when, it does not align with your desires? One thing that I have learned over the years after sitting down with an individual or a couple for counseling, I can discern pretty quickly who is seeking advice and help and who is looking to be justified and told they're right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. We are continuing our series through the book of Luke and we are transitioning once again into the third section of this book. So let's look at our outline once again up here on the screen. You received this at the beginning of this series. We have looked at Jesus' birth and early life. We've looked at his preparation for ministry. And today, we are beginning the third section in this book of Luke. And we'll be di discussing the beginnings of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And something you're going to learn about Jesus right off the bat is that he had no interest in giving people what they wanted to hear. He had no interest in telling people what they wanted to hear. And the reason why is not because he was mean-spirited and, and cold-hearted, quite the opposite. Jesus often said and did difficult things, telling people what they needed to hear for their benefit and for the glory of God. While it made him quite a few enemies, it also humbled many a wayward sinner leading them to repentance and faith. This morning, we are going to see Jesus minister in this way at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And there are four things that I want you to notice from this passage as we go through it. One, I want you to see what we learn from Jesus' message to the religious leaders in his hometown. Second, I want you to see the skepticism of these religious leaders to Jesus. Third, I want you to see Jesus' rebuke of these religious leaders. And fourth, I want you to see their sad rejection of Jesus. Okay, let's begin first with Jesus' message to these religious leaders. The first thing we learn here of Jesus is that he is sent to these Jewish religious leaders to share God's message of redemption. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. 
And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Remember last week, we learned that after Jesus' baptism, his ministry began with the Spirit of God leading him into the wilderness for a lengthy time of fasting and praying and communing with this heavenly Father. And there he is tempted by Satan, but he did not give in. He prevailed over him, countering Satan's temptation with the word of God. And after that period of physical isolation and satanic temptation and divine collaboration with his heavenly Father, after that was complete, we are told that Jesus, again, being guided by the Spirit of God, returned to the place where he was raised in Galilee. And along the way, he stopped to, to worship and teach in many of the synagogues, and he was gaining quite a reputation along the way. We're told that news was spreading about Jesus. Word was traveling that he was, he was this gifted teacher and miracle worker throughout the surrounding area. Now, while Luke doesn't mention any miracles here being performed, we, we learn in verse 23 as we keep reading that, that Jesus did some miraculous works before the events here. John mentions it briefly in John chapter 2, verse 12, and we also know in Cana near Capernaum in Galilee, Jesus turned water into wine, which many believe to be Jesus' first miracle. And then after that, he healed an official's son in Cana who was from Capernaum, which is believed to be before the events here, and that is found in John chapter 4. So word is traveling about Jesus, and we're told that the people were responding favorably to this miracle-working, truth-teaching man. We are told that he was glorified by all. I would say that's a pretty good response, wouldn't you? But notice what happens when he returns to his hometown. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, 
Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he had been brought up, the place where he had lived the majority of his life, and he followed the same strategy he had when he ministered in Capernaum and to the towns in and around that area. We're told, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This was custom in this day when a teacher would enter into a synagogue on the Sabbath, he would be asked to read from the Word of God. And so they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah by God's providence, right? We know about that book and what that says about the Messiah. And he unrolled it, and we're told he searched for this passage. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and then he reads Isaiah 61. And in this passage, Isaiah gives us a prophetic word. He gives a prophetic word to God's people about how they will be delivered and restored from captivity. And which captivity? If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God's people were in and out of captivity, right? They were enslaved quite a bit. They were enslaved in Egypt. Obviously, that's not what Isaiah is talking about because he's writing hundreds of years later. No, he's talking about the time when they were in Babylonian captivity. And remember, little brief history lesson. Bear with me, okay? The Jewish kingdom was divided, north and south. The northern kingdom established in Samaria. Ten of the twelve tribes went there. Two of the twelve remained in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom went into captivity first, fell to the Assyrians, and the kingdom in the south fell later to the Babylonians. Isaiah is writing about their time in Babylon. Right, their Babylonian captivity of the, the southern kingdom, and he's talking about their return from exile. But here, Jesus is reading this passage of Scripture about this event that took place hundreds of years before his earthly ministry, and he brings a different application of this passage of Scripture. He talks about a new kind of release from captivity in the present. Look at it with me again, beginning in verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what Jesus knew by quoting this passage of scripture. He knew that his people knew that Isaiah's prophecy was a bit incomplete. While they did eventually return from Babylonian captivity, the Jews in the north remained in the north. The Jews in the south remained in the south. They remained divided. There was no king from the Davidic kingdom on the throne from that day forward. He knew that they knew that they were currently being ruled by polytheistic and godless Romans uncircumcised Gentiles, pagans, ruled their land. Jesus also knew that there was this longing 
for this restoration that Isaiah spoke of. That's why Jesus reads this passage and he lets them know that this scripture is fulfilled in him. Now you would think they would be excited about that news. And they probably were in part. But but here's the thing about God's gospel message. While it contains parts that are favorable by many, it contains other parts that people don't like, that are rejected by many. Notice that while Jesus announces to these Nazarenes that Isaiah's prophecy was being fulfilled, they are also told hard truths about themselves that many of them refuse to believe. One, Jesus makes clear in this passage, they're sinners in need of saving. He communicates to them in this passage that they are in captivity spiritually like like they're Fathers before them, their family before them was in in captivity physically. They're in captivity spiritually. They are blind and oppressed because of their sin. People don't like that part of the message. They, They like the part that promises glory and eternal life. They like the part where their enemies are promised judgment and they're granted deliverance from them, but they do not like the part that says they're enslaved and blinded by their own sinfulness and are in complete need of a Savior. They don't like that message, but that's the message that Christ preaches. He also preaches that He Himself is the great hope for the hopeless, the great deliverer of the captives. He is the one sent by God in the power of the Spirit to give sight to the spiritually blind and to free those who are oppressed. He is God's forever king, the king of kings who rules over all from the lineage of David, who has come to sit on David's throne forever and rule and reign in the hearts of men. He is the sign of God's great favor. Isaiah's promise of full deliverance and complete restoration is fulfilled through his person and work. That's Jesus' message to them. How are they going to respond to it? Look at verse 22 and look at our second point here. While they respond somewhat favorably to him, we see that the Jewish religious leaders were skeptical of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So so notice here, they're, they're captivated by Jesus. We're told every eye in the synagogue was fixed upon him. And my guess is it probably wasn't that way every week. I don't know for sure, but there were probably some real snoozers who spoke in the synagogue, right? But, but not Jesus. All eyes are fixed on him, and we're told they marveled. That is the Greek word thamazo. It means to be captivated, to be in awe, to be gripped and amazed by Jesus' teaching. Their eyes are, are fixed on him. They're amazed by the words coming out of his mouth, and yet they question, they doubt. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Is he not the carpenter's boy? Born and raised right here in Nazareth? Him, the chosen one? Now that's a stretch. God's Messiah? Surely not. They doubted. 
They were skeptical of Jesus, and as a result, they questioned his message. Now, if I'm Jesus here, I'm tempted to show out, you know? Say, oh, you don't, you don't believe me? Okay, we'll see about that. Try to outdo the water-to-wine miracle, right? And impress. That's what I would be tempted to do here. But, but notice Jesus does something completely different. While he knows their thoughts, he, he knows they would like for him to prove himself by putting on a show, he doesn't perform any miracles to convince them. Instead, point number three, Jesus of Nazareth rebukes the Jewish religious leaders for their unbelief. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, put our skepticism to rest, Jesus. Sound familiar? Think about last week. Work miracles like you did in Capernaum. Perform for us, Jesus. Put on a show and then we'll believe you. Again, I'd be tempted to do this. But remember the truth we, we learned last week when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan was trying to get Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God by putting his Father to the test. Instead, Jesus simply trusts God, takes him at his word. God had already said at his baptism, this is my beloved Son. He spoke it from the heavens. No more need for anything other than that. God said it, Jesus believed it, that's it. That's that, right? Faith is not putting God to the test. It's taking God at his word. Jesus had come into their midst and he promised that this work that Isaiah promised is going to be fulfilled in him. That's that. They did not believe him. They were skeptical of him. And it was in their, their heart to put him to the test. Prove it, Jesus. Put on a show for us. Work your miracles. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, let me explain a few things by way of context before we really unpackage what Jesus is getting at here. Notice first where Jesus is ministering. He is in, in Galilee, in Nazareth, in his hometown. There are a few things you need to know about Nazareth. First, you need to know that it was located in the old northern kingdom. Look at the map up on the screen here. It'll show you where Nazareth is. It's in the, in the northern kingdom. Again, quick history lesson. When the kingdom was divided, 10 of the 12 tribes settled in Samaria, Two of the twelve settled in Jerusalem, both ruled by kings and had separate places of worship and both struggled in sin. The northern kingdom more than the southern, but both of them struggled and both of them were judged by God, right? 
And as a result of the, of the wickedness of those in the northern kingdom, their, their leaders and their people, they became an extremely wicked and godless people. Here's why that's important in understanding this passage. You see, two of God's prophets who were sent up north were Elijah and Elisha. Both were faithful laborers for the Lord. But nothing changed. They were sent up north. Nothing changed with them. They continued in idolatry and unbelief. So Jesus tells them here, In Elijah's day, the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and many died. There were many widows in this day, women who lost husbands and children, and Elijah did not visit one in Israel. Instead... God sent him to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow there. We learn about that in 1 Kings chapter 17, that he stayed with her, he raised her boy from the dead. He did not do any of that for any in Israel. He did not perform any miracles there. Then he said, when Elisha comes on the scene, when he was ministering in these parts, there were all these lepers, and he did not heal one. Instead, he healed a Syrian named Naaman who came to Elisha and said in faith, heal me, Elisha, and he was healed by being dipped in the muddy Jordan seven times. We learn about that in 2 Kings chapter 5. Notice here, two pagans, one widow, one Syrian general, and God worked miraculously in both of their lives and, and raised a son from death, healed another from leprosy, but he did none of that for unbelieving Israel. Why? Because of their unbelief. God did not try and win them by performing signs and miracles for them. Instead, because of their unbelief, even though he had sent prophets to them, they did not received their word they rejected it so instead he poured out his judgment upon them but healed two pagans who responded in faith jesus is telling these nazarenes here in this synagogue this story to show them you've not learned a whole lot from that time not a lot has changed he is showing them here just like your fathers before you who did not believe you were still unbelieving you're wanting God to perform for you and prove himself to you you're still putting him to the test instead of trusting him and taking him at his word and there will be no miracles performed here because of your unbelief you do not believe me when I tell you that I am God's promised Messiah, the one sent by God to save. You want to see a miracle, yet you're not looking to me in faith to work miracles. And you're not listening to what I have said. So guess what? God is going to do to you just like he did to your fathers before you. He is not going to give any miracles. He's not going to send any this way. There will be no miracles performed here. Jesus, he's addressing their, their hard-hearted and unbelieving hearts. How do they respond? In repentance? Well, that'd be the right way to go, wouldn't it? The right response in this moment would be to hit their knees before King Jesus and plead for forgiveness and place their faith in him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's what happened here? Well, sad to say, it doesn't. Notice how they respond. 
The Jewish religious leaders reject Jesus of Nazareth. Sad, sad. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now let's pause there for a moment and let's contrast what's said here to what is said in verse 15. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues and we, we are told that he is glorified by all. And then notice what we're told here. When they heard the teachings of Jesus, all were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We're told they seized him and they, they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, thought to be Mount Precipice. Here's a picture of it up on the screen. It's thought to be the area where this happened. They took him to the edge and wanted to throw him off the cliff to his death. He's one of their own, a Jew from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, one many claim to be the, the Messiah. He is in the synagogue preaching salvation to them, which involves showing them their sinfulness and need for salvation, and they don't like it, so they respond by trying to kill him. But Jesus, I believe, miraculously escapes. He continues on in ministry, leaving these Jews from this synagogue behind in a lost and condemned state. And there is no indication in Scripture that Jesus ever returns. The Bidi, Anyabwile, in his commentary on Luke, says, As far as we know, the Lord never returned to Nazareth. Some rejections are final. Sad story. Instead of being convicted of sin and responding in repentance and faith, they respond like their hard-hearted ancestors before them. They suppress that sin. They protect themselves from being exposed. They reject Christ and they continue in their unbelief. And listen, here comes the application. While many today would not respond to these extremes and the way they did try to kill Jesus for this message. Listen, if you reject this gospel message we share each and every week, if you refuse to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, if you refuse to confess that sin and forsake that sin and believe on Christ and bow the knee to King Jesus, you're no different from the crowd that tried to kill him in that day. Listen, Jesus has come to give sight to your blind eyes. He has come to break the chains of sin in your life. He has come to free you from spiritual oppression. He has come to save you from your sin and restore you to a right relationship with the living God. But for you to be saved, for you to be free, you must realize that you're lost. You must realize that you're enslaved. You must realize that you're blind. You must realize that you're a wretch. And you must be broken over that sin. Then and only then, Will you then look to and trust in and cry out to Christ to save you? 
Those in Nazareth in, in Jesus' day, they could not bear the humiliation and the shame of admitting what they were and refused to be honest with what they needed. And as a result, they rejected Christ. Sad story. But here's the truth of the matter. It's a story that is being relived again and again and again and again today. I pray this not be your story. If you're here today and you have not confessed your sin to God and forsaken that sin and bowed the knee to King Jesus, I pray you would today. Listen, don't join these Nazarenes here from Luke 4. Don't reject Christ. Make Him your Lord today. Look to Him for rescue from your sin. Trust in Him alone for your salvation today and be saved. Let's pray together.